0: Chapter 19 of Sons of the Covenant by Samuel Gordon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Adrian Pretzelis. Chapter 19. The next day distinguished itself for Lou by a certain dragginess that was peculiarly its own. Everything had an element of length the way up to the stock-room was twice as long as usual the change took longer in counting out people spoke with irritating slowness he asked old christopher if he noticed it as well can't say i do replied christopher from the birthday armchair where he had now taken to spending most of his time but when you've been out late on the spree it's no wonder things feel a bit leaden next morning. i dare say you're right said lou as a matter of fact he had neither exerted himself very violently to extract enjoyment from the diamond festivity nor had he left late scarcely two minutes after the duvines but he accepted christopher's explanation Thinking it as good as any he cared to formulate for himself. Suppose you let me help you a bit. Perhaps things will go quicker then, suggested Christopher. I'll do nothing of the sort, was Lou's severe reply. You work as hard as you can at taking it easy. You never will let me put a hand to anything now, grumbled old Christopher but only very softly you've got to consider yourself invalided you know yourself invalids aren't permitted at the front so hurry up and get strong again i'm hurrying as fast as i can lou boy but just as i've made an inch of headway that cough of mine gives a tug and pulls me back again that's exactly why you should keep quiet and pretend it's having all its own way and one fine day thinking it's finished you up altogether it'll march itself off and then you and i will have the laugh of it see christopher nodded feebly he did everything feebly now he was not even strong enough to notice the child's language in which lou had thought it fit to converse with him for the last week or two it had given Lou a tremendous shock, the first time Christopher had answered some simple question of his by a look of blank incomprehension. A feeling of unutterable sadness had stolen over him at the knowledge that the firm of Donaldson and Lipcott now counted one sleeping partner. The nature and degree of whose sleeping—Lou recoiled from the thought might at any moment turn out to be something else than what the business idiom implied. At first, too, Lou had felt a little frightened at the prospect of sole responsibility devolving on him at having to be the umpire of his own initiative, unqualified by reference to Christopher's sage advice. But Christopher's days of wisdom were irrevocably over. But then Lou took heart again as he remembered that with each step forward the business had made, so in proportion had his capacities for coping with it increased, and the danger he apprehended was rather that they would grow out of proportion and chafe against the narrowness of their scope. The chief discomfort of it was the physical strain to which he was put. What, however, made him struggle on alone was the consideration that Christopher would look on the suggestion of keeping a shop-boy or clerk not as a necessity for the prosperity of the concern, but as an additional sign of his own uselessness. And Lou was determined to work his arms and legs out of joint sooner than give that kindly old pain-riven heart a final pang and that being so he once more fell to wondering why, with two men's work on his hands, the day should count twice the ordinary number of minutes to the hour. He heaved a deep sigh of relief when he saw the clock pointing to seven. Quietly he put up the shutters without giving Christopher any reason for closing an hour earlier. For one thing. It was unnecessary, for Christopher now never took it into his head to ask what the time was. It was quite obvious that he had done with such a thing as time and its difficult and artificial subdivisions. When Lou came home he found his mother already in her state dress, the one she had worn last evening at the Diamonds. "'Won't we be late? It's such a long way, you know.' she said anxiously. "'We shall be early enough,' replied Lou, a little pettishly perhaps. But despite his assurance he made such a hurried supper that the greater part of it remained behind on his plate. He went up to his own room at leisurely pace, but once he had shut the door he broke into a frantic haste which resulted in half the desired speed. Of course the frisky collar stud had to have its little game of hide and seek, and when it was finally captured, Lou thought unkind things of the laundry people for starching the buttonholes into such obstinacy. And then when he came down he found to his surprise that instead of an hour as he imagined, the whole proceedings had not taken him twenty minutes. Lou, I feel a trifle nervous, do you? laughed Mrs. Lipcott, just as they got out into the open. "'Nonsense, mother,' replied Lou. Then he stopped abruptly. "'I must run in again for a minute. I've forgotten something—my uh, handkerchief.' He left his mother waiting outside and hurried back to his room. In the first place he exchanged the handkerchief he had put in his pocket before for another one by which he compromised with his conscience for having put his mother off with a pretext. Then he unlocked the little drawer in which he kept his bank-book, and extracted from it an envelope. This last contained, as he assured himself by a cursory inspection, a scrap of manuscript, the writing of which showed the faintness of age. It was indeed the first communication he had ever received by post. What prompted him to take it with him now, when he was going to see the writer of it, was to himself a mystery. "'I wonder which turn-in it is,' said Lou, as they came out of the station. "'The third on the right,' answered Mrs. Lipcott, very pat. "'Is it? How do you know?' "'I think I remember Phil saying so.' replied his mother, though with a curious embarrassment which did not escape Lou. "'You're right about the turning. Now, how about finding the number?' said Lou. His difficulty was due to the fact that the houses stood far back, fringed in front, by a long stretch of garden. "'It's the fifth house on the other side,' said Mrs. Lipcott. "'Did Phil tell you?' no yes vacillated mrs lipcott you've been here before mother said lou turning on her quickly yes lou admitted mrs lipcott recovering herself i've been here before four times i believe but i never went inside well then what made you come here at all lou can't you understand Lou thought a moment or two, and then nodded assent silently. "'I couldn't help it,' said Mrs. Lipcott, deprecatingly. Sometimes the thought of him grew too strong for me, and then I came up here, after it was dark, and stood outside just to feel him near me, even if—' "'Where's the need of explaining, Muffa?" interrupted Lou. "'I told you I understood.' Thank you, Lou, said mrs Lipcott. They found Mrs Devine, Dulcie and Phil seated on the window-terrace the evening was very fine waiting for them. A vote between the sitting-room and a little more of the terrace was easily carried in favour of the latter. If you're not too tired, we might take a stroll through the grounds, Lou said Phil presently. Dulcie, you will come too, eh? Dulcie's ready acceptance of the suggestion hardly left Lou the choice of a refusal, even if he had felt inclined to refuse, which he did not. He could not quite make it out. The phenomenon disconcerted him somewhat. The moment Dulcie had touched his hand in welcome the impatience which had haunted him all day had lifted, as though by magic. Perhaps now he was going to find out what it all meant." Without a word Mrs. Duveen watched the trio down the gate-walk. Then she moved her chair close to Mrs. Lipcott's. "'I am very glad we have an opportunity for five minutes' quiet talk,' she said, sinking her voice rather unnecessarily, because the others were far out of earshot. "'I would hardly hoped we should get it so easily. And I was already casting about for a stratagem. What is it? Anything so very special you have to say? Smiled Mrs. Lipcott. Yes, very special, said Mrs. Duveen, evidently much in earnest. It's nothing less than to ask your forgiveness. My forgiveness. I did you a great wrong in taking your son away from you. Still that is so long ago that i may fairly claim that time has made good my trespass the wrong i want you to forgive i committed only a few days back why surely you really don't mean-i I don't understand you faltered mrs lipcott helplessly you will soon said mrs devine a hand closing very tightly over that of her listener "'Mrs. Lipcott, the truth is that a few days ago I robbed you of your son a second time. No, listen.' The night Phil returned from Cambridge, he told me he had made up his mind to go back to you. He said, not in so many words, that he had eaten the bread of charity long enough, that his relationship to me was undermining his sense of manliness. It may have been that, but no doubt it was a good deal more. It was blood calling to blood. The old ties were asserting themselves again. He wanted his mother, his real mother—not the imitation one I have been to him. No, please let me talk. What did I do? I was false to the spirit of true womanhood, and combated his natural honourable feelings by every wile and guile I could think of and I succeeded in chaining him down again. For the time being I felt myself justified in using any measures, no matter to whom I might be dealing hurt and heartache. I was jealous—insensately jealous. But, thank God, I have come back to my right mind. I want to get even with my conscience—I want to get even with you, my dear friend." i did not know he was coming back i never expected it murmured mrs lipcott half to herself that only makes my offence greater said mrs Devine eagerly i was taking an unfair advantage if you had known that his intention was such you would have done your best to strengthen it and made it hold out against all the trickery i mustered up and now i want you to show me your forgiveness by taking him back. I dare not tell him of the conclusion I have come to. It would puzzle him, or make him think I was playing fast and loose with him, and he will hate me. You can easily set right my blunder. Just say to him, Phil, come, and he will come." Mrs. Lipcott felt the slight figure next to her quiver from head to foot. You want to keep him yourself?" she said. No, I don't want to keep him, cried Mrs. Duveen. I want to be able to look you and everybody else in the face. Mrs. Lipcott was silent. Gradually, as though by the growing force of contact, she felt a shiver tingle down her back. But no, it was not that. She had ample cause of her own for trembling. She had been set face to face with an unexpected temptation, and she did not know how she would come through it. It was a terrible thing to have her heart's desire placed within easy reach of her, and to feel that before she might snatch at it she must hustle her conscience to one side. To have Phil back again? Her head whirled. To have him back for good and all and to be done with the agony of empty longing which had hounded her forth on the cold winter nights, happily to get a glimpse of him and assure herself that she really did have a son Phil, whom she had handed over of her own free will to another woman. And here was this other woman, pretending that she was eager to restore him, and pretending very badly, for with every syllable of hers she cried out in protest against being taken at her word. The question that put itself to Mrs. Lipcott was, which of the two was more fit for making sacrifice, which of the two was more cunning in the art of resignation? And undoubtedly the answer to that question was—herself well then in god's name no mrs duveen she said tremulously you blame yourself too much you were right in doing your best to keep him with you you have earned him don't try to justify me in spite of myself mrs lipcott the only favour you can do me is to accept my apology and to tell phil that we have talked the matter over and we have come to see that but we have not talked the matter over," said Mrs. Lipcott. "'Well, then, I must go through my confession again,' replied Mrs. Duveen, a little wearily. "'No, what I mean is that you have put your side of the case. I have said nothing yet.' "'But there is no need for it, my dear. What is the use of putting your side? I admit everything beforehand.' in that case mrs devine phil stays with you stays with me well then in heaven's name what are you going to say mrs lipcott set her teeth firmly before replying somehow it steadied her voice only that i too have a conscience and that my conscience tells me that your claims to him are quite as great as mine and that's why it is better things should keep as they are. After all, it was surely nothing but a boy's fancy. Do you really think it was nothing else? asked Mrs. Devine wistfully. I'm certain of it, said Mrs. Lipcott, with the silent thanksgiving that she was convinced of the contrary. Even if it was, mused Mrs. Duveen, i can't understand a mother being so strong all jewish mothers are strong said mrs lipcott you too although you may not know it yourself i think we all learned the lesson from hannah you know whom i mean the one who saw all her seven sons mangled to death one after another and helped them to die painlessly by smiling on them all the time I've read her story over and over again, but, thank God, mine is a very different one to hers." "'In the sadness of it only—in the heroism you rank equal,' said Mrs Duveen very softly. Whether Mrs Lipcott did not quite catch the remark, or whether she desired to clinch the matter so as to cut off all retreat for herself—at any rate her voice was quite matter-of-fact, as she said, "So." that is settled?" "'No, not quite settled,' replied Mrs. Devine, chokingly. "'Something else remains to be done.' She took Mrs. Lipcott's hands in her own and pressed them convulsively as she peered hard through the gloom into the dim outlines of the face before her. Then, with a gasp that was more of a sob, she whispered, Dina, Mrs. Lipcott understood at once. "'Rose,' she whispered back. With that the two were in each other's arms, sealing their compact of sisterhood in the time-honoured fashion which women have. From along the gate-walk had come at intervals the sound of merry laughter—dulces fresh and silvery, fills full and sonorous both punctuated occasionally by a kind of good-humoured grunt which could only belong to Lou. They were indulging in reminiscences of last night, and Mrs. Nyman would no doubt have been considerably chagrined had she known that the humorous side was uppermost. "'Pity Effie isn't down with us,' said Phil tentatively. "'Won't you go and call her Dulcie?' if i do i'll have to do it through a keyhole because the door's locked you know she won't be interrupted when she's practising well then let's go into the garden suggested phil as an alternative it's so dark there we won't be able to see anything objected dulcie more fun than that having to feel our way laughed phil and suppose i bang my head against the arbour said dulcie merrily "'So much the worse for the arbor, teased Phil. A wretch and a slap from Dulcie were the punishment of the offender. "'This way,' said Phil, "'and let's keep close together. I do hope we won't get mixed up in this Egypt.' "'I'm going to hold tight to you, Phil,' said Dulcie. "'We're mixed up already,' said Lou. "'You've got hold of my arm instead of Phil's.' "'Oh!' said Dulcie letting go hastily. "'Don't you think mine will do instead, though?' asked Lou, in a tone he hoped sounded facetious. Dulcie was about to be agitated by qualms of propriety, but she quickly repented. "'Why, Phil's brother!' "'But you must promise not to lose me,' she said. Lou, however, forgot to promise, because he was much too busy enjoying the contact of her arm. He was also in a forgetful mood tonight. The darkness, or whatever else it was, seemed to have washed from his mind all the things of which he as a rule was most painfully conscious. His anxiety about Christopher, the worries of the business, the fatigue of the day's toiling. But chiefly he had forgotten himself. The loo he used to know, whose soul was nothing but an impatient straining toward the goal his resolution had set up for him immovably, was hardly recognizable in this other loo, who ambled airily, irresponsibly, through a mystic fairyland, not knowing where the path led to, not caring whether it led to anywhere. But he more than suspected who the guide was that led him such devious ways. Indeed it was the only certainty possessed at present. To him Phil's jesting admonition about not getting mixed up was a warning to be taken seriously. So he knew he would untangle himself sooner or later—but, oh, how he wished it might be later! Inch by inch almost they crept forward along one of the sidewalks keeping close to the wall oh phil cried dulcie suddenly i think i've trodden something dead a mimosa i believe have you never mind we can't prosecute you for murder said phil dryly dulcie expressed her indignation at his callousness by addressing lou if you had sniggered just then i wouldn't have let you hold my arm another second lou said nothing but felt very glad for having just then communed with himself so earnestly as not to have overheard phil's attempt at wit a yard or two further on there was another exclamation from dulcie what's the matter now asked phil unsympathetically i've got my hair caught in a creeper oh wait a bit there i'm loose again that's right "'Pretend to be Absalom,' chuckled Phil. "'I believe he was left hanging to his tree for killing mimosas. What do you say, Lou?' "'I'm going back,' said Dulcie, ruffled as to her temper as well as her hair. "'No, you won't,' said Phil sternly. "'We're going to make the round of this garden if we all hang for it.' After a little demur, which was obviously artificial, Dulcie consented to proceed. "'I say, Lou, we'd have given something for this place in the old days, eh?' "'What sort for playing Red Indians?' asked Phil. "'Yes, it seems grand for prowling,' replied Lou. "'Oh, yes, a fine lot of prowling you'll have done here,' said Dulcie scornfully. "'If old Rackham—that's our gardener—had caught you at it, he'd have scalped you with his pruning-knife.' Phil had stopped more by the sound of his movements than by sight for the night though calm and clear was very dark they perceived he was reconnoitring what are you going to do asked Dulcie find out where we are do you know we've passed the arbour without knocking it over luckily interjected Phil and ought to be somewhere near the shrubbery i happen to think otherwise Dulcie I've got a horrible suspicion. We've got into the chrysanthemums." "'There! What did I say? I told you not to go off the path. Mother'll be awfully angry if we do any damage to them.' "'I must admit the chrysanthemums are rather a weak spot with her,' said Phil soberly. "'What's to be done?' asked Lou. "'Perhaps if we wait a bit the moon will come out,' hazarded Dulcie. "'Nonsense,' said Phil. "'There won't be any moon tonight. You keep here while I trail back cautiously and fetch a lantern.' The other two listened to the sound of his retreating footsteps as far as their ears could follow them. "'This is a tremendously big garden, you know,' said Dulcie at last. "'And the dark makes it look twice as big.' "'Don't you feel frightened?' asked Lou. "'What should I be frightened about?' answered Dulcie, astonished. "'Oh, nothing. Only it's so dark, you see,' faltered Lou. "'I know what you mean,' said Dulcie, after a pause. You mean stopping here with you.' "'And considering I'm little more than a stranger,' added Lou. "'Not so much as you think,' came from Dulcie, almost involuntarily." "'Not so much as I think,' echoed Lou. I'm going to tell you the truth now," said Dulcie resolutely. It's easier in the dark. If it was always dark, I, I think people wouldn't tell each other lies. Do you remember I pretended last night I didn't know how long it was since we met last?" I didn't know you were only pretending," said Lou, his heart in his mouth. I did. I knew exactly how long it was, and I was very angry that it was so long did phil never give you any messages he gave me several only i thought he made em up himself no they came from me right enough that shows i thought about you sometimes doesn't it lou nodded forgetting that the gesture was an absurdity under the circumstances doesn't it insisted dulcie yes oh i'm going to tell you everything went on Dulcie recklessly. I want to make up for playing the fraud last night. Sometimes—well, more than sometimes—I wondered what was going to become of you. Once or twice I had an idea you might tone out bad—you never can tell with boys, you know—but that was only once or twice. Mostly I felt very hopeful about you. Well, so when I saw you yesterday I felt at once that you had turned out as i had always pictured to myself you would that's what i mean by saying you aren't such a stranger to me while well, i feel as if i had seen you and talked to you every day all these years the logic of dulcie's explanation was perfectly obvious to Lou's understanding and from his understanding it passed on to his heart which seemed to be its real destination judging from the way it made itself at home there. "'I'm so glad you hope the best for me,' he said humbly, gratefully. "'Are you? Why?' "'Because your hoping perhaps helped me a little towards it.' "'Yes, I do think sometimes hoping is nearly as good as praying,' mused Dulcie. "'But I'm not going to leave all the truth telling to you.' went on Lou. What? Have you been pretending as well?" In a sort of way. I knew those messages came from you. And that's why you took no notice of them? I refused to come because I wasn't fit to come. I was clumsy and awkward. I don't know how to wear my clothes properly. I spoke badly. I wasn't your equal, and I was terribly afraid you would find it out and get disappointed with me, and give me the go-by altogether. I dare say you would have treated me very politely, and not have laughed till my back was turned, and perhaps after a while you might have have tolerated me. But I don't care for the idea of being tolerated. Oh yes, I've wanted to come ever so much, but the risk was too great. You mean to say it wasn't Mother you minded, or Uncle Bram? Only me?" Only you." "'What a pity,' said Dulcie regretfully. "'What is, that you didn't explain it all to me long ago. If you had, I could easily have taken care not to get disappointed with you, and have made proper allowances for—for for things look what a terrible lot of friendship we have wasted all these years it's sinful couldn't we make up for it now by being friends all the harder suggested lou will you do your share of it though lou was silent casting about for some empathetic rejoinder to assert his willingness unconsciously almost his hand slipped into his pocket where reposed the scrap of paper she had sent him long ago, and which he had treasured so assiduously. He had half pulled it out intending to explain to her what part it might play as evidence, when a streak of light flashed toward them, and Phil sang out, "'Ship ahoy there!' "'So you will?' urged Dulcie, not understanding Lou's silence. "'Yes, I will,' said Lou quickly thrusting the envelope back into his pocket. The opportunity had passed. Perhaps there might be another later on in the evening. Even if there was not, he had no cause to grumble. "'Now then, you thieves, no larks! Where are you?' sang out Phil's voice again. "'Here, where you left us,' answered Dulcie." Together with the light streak came a burst of laughter which showed Phil to be accompanied by effie ten to one she's laughing at us i s'pose Phil's been telling her of our plight said lou good-humouredly we can afford to let her laugh eh said dulcie and lou replied with a heartfelt yes cheer up you wretched castaways help is coming jeered effie and presently the relief party was upon them good gracious don't we all look handsome continued effie referring to the fact that the lantern phil's bicycle lamp cast a thin trail of light on the ground while leaving their faces in total darkness jingo saved by an inch said phil examining their relative position to the chrysanthemums now for the retreat follow me closely all of you ahem i feel like xenophon and his ten thousand Phil, how can you talk shop under these distressing circumstances?" said Effie. Who, by the way, was this Mr. Xylophon? Phil's account of the famous Anabasis made the return journey seem unnecessarily short. Unnecessarily for Lou, at least. But he would not give way to the vague dissatisfaction at having soon to share with the world something which, in a few brief moments. He had come to regard as his own. The folly of it was obvious, and besides he noticed that, as soon as they got into the radius of the hall lamp, Dulcie's first glance was at him, and he was strangely comforted. Mrs. Duveen and Mrs. Lipcott were just going within. The electroleers inside were sending out a great flood of light through the three ground-floor windows. Lou took in with astonishment, a kind of dismay almost, the breadth and bulk of the house, which the enveloping gloom had previously shown up as a shadowy outline. Compared to it, his own dwelling off the mile road was a mere child's toy. The feeling that came over him had in it nothing of envy. His dismay was changing to downright alarm. It made him catch his breath like one who was about to plunge into an unseen danger, and has been cautioned not a heartbeat too soon. The huge house lowered down upon him warningly. It put to flight certain imaginings of his half-formed and inchoate, and yet leaving a void such as he would only expect from the effacing of his dearest and most familiar thought. And the worst of it was that he could not make up his mind whether his prevailing mood should be that of sadness or of anger. "'Late Victorian with a dash of Gothic! I hope you like the style,' said Phil at his elbow. Lou gave a start, but recovering himself immediately forced a laugh then at phil's suggestion he followed him up into the hall and thence into the sitting-room with its broad glare of light but though the brightness did not reassure lou it at any rate helped him to adjust his emotions he knew now that the proper feeling under the circumstances was not sadness but anger anger at himself for an improvident fool who was coining counterfeit hopes and thinking therewith to bribe off a sure and immutable disappointment. However having come to the conclusion that he was a prodigal fool, Lou, from notions of self-respect, refused to add to his folly and prodigality by wasting the pleasure of the moment. For indeed they made a merry company, and Uncle Bram's arrival shortly afterwards did certainly not detract from the animation of the proceedings i'm glad to have this chance of improving our acquaintance said uncle bram on shaking hands with lou i've heard such a lot about you and mr alexander being despite his bodily bulk a man of prompt action lost no time in taking stock of lou but he was exceedingly astonished at the keen grasp of affairs lou displayed in his remarks his knowledge of the questions of the day his insights into matters commercial and economic. "'How did you get to know all these things?' Mr. Alexander could not forbear asking at last. "'Oh, I keep my eyes and ears open.' "'I mean, I read the papers and attend a good many lectures,' replied Lou, with a pleased smile at the implied compliment. He was all the more glad of the good impression he was producing upon Mr. Alexander because he knew he was doing so almost in spite of himself. He by no means felt at his best. It cost him more than one great effort to prevent his mind and his eyes from wandering to where Dulcie, Phil, and Effie were exercising their joint ingenuity over a new toy puzzle which Uncle Bram had brought with him from the city. Lou could have sold it in a twinkling. In fact he had himself stocked the toy heavily, but he also knew that his anxiety to be with them did not arise entirely from a desire to show off his superiority in the matter. At last, however, Mr. Alexander thought himself in duty bound to transfer his attention to Mrs. Lipcott, and Lou obtained his release. After that things went so rapidly that when Lou shot an apprehensive glance at the mantelpiece clock he had an agreeable thrill of surprise at finding it only half-past ten. As to doubting the bona fides of so solid and venerable a concern, Lou felt it would be nothing short of a positive insult, and so he refrained, considerately, from comparing it to his own timepiece. They need not leave for an hour. But an hour is an hour, even when it seems ten minutes, and the London Railway companies are run in accordance with chronometric and not emotional regulations." Punctually at half-past eleven Lou signalled to his mother. "'It's no use, Lou. There are no more trains to-night,' said Phil, smiling at Mrs. Duveen. Lou looked blank there's a train at ten to twelve i inquired he said so there is but that went three-quarters of an hour ago that clock's an hour slow in fact i moved it back myself laughed phil delighted at the success of his ruse you see explained mrs devine apologetically phil was so bent on making a long night of it as he called it and i had to promise him i wouldn't interfere with his wish i too was sworn to silence or else i should have let my waterbury speak joined in uncle bram what's to be done lou asked mrs lipcott we'll have a cab mother said lou cheerfully no you won't you'll stay here overnight and see me to the station in the morning that was the idea of the conspiracy said phil mother can stay I must be at the shop at nine," said Lou firmly. And so the arrangement stood. Mrs. Duveen allowed another half-hour's grace, and then, with special reference to the two girls and the support of Mrs. Lipcott, she moved that the female contingent should adjourn to rest. "'Call this a late night—a fraud, I call it!' cried Effie indignantly, while Dulcie looked a dumb entreaty. But Mrs. Duveen's ruling prevailed, as it always did in matters of household routine. Lou nodded in polite compliance to Mrs. Duveen, who said something about now she'd broken the ice. He understood her to say that she wished him to come very often, but the actual words he only caught vaguely. That was because there rang in his ears and in his heart the echo of Dulcie's good-night to which she had added half timorously the word Lou. It came to him as a revelation how wonderfully soft and musical his name could be made to sound. "'Now that you will have to cab it anyhow, you may as well stay on a bit,' said Phil. "'Yes, do,' urged Uncle Bram, and Lou readily consented. He had an idea that for the present. He was not fit company for himself. The talk at first was somewhat desultory, drifting lightly here and there until, half at uncle Bram's suggestion, Lou brought it to anchor with an account of his career to date. Uncle Bram followed him with unmistakable interest, as did Phil, to whom Lou's doings were always instinct with the zest of romance. No wonder. For to the student to whom books are the world, it is the realities of life that take the shape of fairy tales. And Phil's pride in his adventurous brother waxed boundlessly, although the latter's unusual communicativeness surprised him not a little. Lou could have explained it by a desire to stand well in the eyes of Dulcie's uncle, an explanation which would have sounded perfectly natural but lou himself might have felt considerably at a loss had he been asked to trace that desire back to its first beginnings uncle bram seemed to have an inkling that he was being treated exceptionally as his next words showed thank you mr lipcott for having made me your confidant i feel honored and delighted I won't say that my belief in my brothers-in-faith has ever been materially shaken, but it is just as well that it should occasionally get a spoonful of tonic, and you have been as good as a whole bottle. You see, we oldsters have a long way to look back, and only a little way to look forward, no further than to the rising generation. We haven't half as much time as we should like in which to do our duty to the future of our race. And that is why we are so pleased each time we get an assurance that at least our immediate successors will safeguard our traditions. Only the skeptic or the faint heart will ask for more than that. As long as we are sure of you we may, in the natural order of things, be sure of those who will, in their turn, take your places. And so Link will follow Link, until our destiny or God's purpose in us will have been accomplished. Uncle Bram's voice had sunk reverently. His last words might have been the cadence of a prayer. "'I understand you, Mr. Alexander,' said Lou, regarding him steadily. "'You may wonder at the importance I attach to you,' continued Mr. Alexander more briskly. "'I have good reason for it. I am not often mistaken in my estimates.' And I consider you have in you the markings of a worker, a worker of the most valuable sort, because you have lived what we others have but observed. We should be to you what the dilettante is to the professional. But don't hurry, grow ripe at your leisure. You still have your own field to plow. In the meantime, you know what I should like to do with you? I should like to bind you down by an affidavit—a moral one, of course—but when you hear the call within you or without, you will answer it, and not give precedence to other interests. It is perhaps an impertinence of me. I shan't be offended at your saying so. To tell you the truth, Mr. Alexander, I don't want to be bound down to it answered Lou. Mr. Alexander smiled. I can guess the sense in which you want me to take that. I'm nothing but an old bungler for wishing to rob you of the credit of the initiative. Forgive and forget my mistake." Shortly afterwards the conference broke up. Uncle Bram retired to the bedroom which was ever at his disposal. Lou and Phil stood at the street door clasping each other's hand firmly. For a minute neither spoke. "'I'm not going to say good-bye, Lou,' remarked Phil at last. "'It's all right as a sentiment, but as a word it sounds too formidable.' Lou nodded. "'You mean we aren't really parting from one another?' "'No, and never shall,' said Phil. "'You will be going your way, and I mine.' and I shall always feel as if I should only have to stretch out my arm in order to tap you on the shoulder. And you may be sure that I shall stop and turn whatever may be my errand," replied Lou. "'I'm glad it's you who are leaving the house and not I,' smiled Phil. "'What do you mean?' queried Lou, not catching his drift. "'Don't you remember? It's the privilege of the one who stops behind to call after the outgoing one, The Lord bless you and preserve you," replied Phil, repeating the old formula in its Hebrew setting. You've certainly got an unfair advantage, but I'll be even with you one of these days," smiled Lou. And with that he went. A few yards down the road he was hailed from a passing hansom with the customary, Cab sir Lou answered with a ringing, no thanks, and hurried on. The idea of riding, when he had so much to walk out of himself. He felt much more inclined to take two cabs and run between, which he and his mates used to advise each other in the old days was a healthy way of getting home from anywhere. The sky had preserved the same hue of solid inkiness which had necessitated the halt at the Chrysanthemums. Lou was halting there once more. He was again listening to Dulcie's offer of friendship. Now he could puzzle it out at his convenience. He knew what friendship meant. Christopher had taught him that. But the sober, reasoning attachment that drew him to the old man contained nothing of the responsiveness wherewith he strained towards this girl-woman. That was instinct with an involuntary yearning for affinity which he could not explain by any rule or rote of argument, which robbed him of all the self-knowledge to which he had so laboriously attained. What was going to be its development? This was what he must make up his mind on, and quickly. He could not say he had nothing to guide him. There was the warning that had been borne in upon him at the sight of the great house, the warning corroborated by his wondering survey of the grand appointed chamber which had awed him the whole evening with its air of quiet unconscious magnificence. The couch whereupon he had sat had forced upon him comparison with the hard-ribbed horse-haired sofa in his own home the sofa which was intended for the crowning glory of the newly acquired furniture, and which now was the first support that gave way in the fabric of his pride. There had grown up in him a sense of difference, of distance. He felt that in having got rid of his awkwardness in speech and manner he had done but the least part to set him on a plane with the girl who wanted his friendship. So then there he must stop. It was madness to think further, to feel further. He must husband the energy of heart he was willing to lavish, and add it instead to his muscle, his brain. He must forge ahead till the difference was bridged, until the distance lay behind, until— He had got eastward of the bank. Past him lumbered heavy drays drawn by patient, way horses, while the drivers huddled snoring on their box-seats. They were bringing the produce of the fields to be devoured by the dwellers of the town. Ah, what a hungry, ravenous city it was! God help the one that got into its clutches, and did not prove too tough a morsel for its maw! Lou almost laughed. It would find him tough enough it would break its teeth on him. Lou Lipcott was no vegetable marrow. A little way on he passed the East End meat market. Dozens of men were already hard at work loading the carcasses of sheep and bullocks onto the hurdle wagons that were to distribute them to the dealers. Lou could distinguish between the beasts that had been pole axed, and those which had been killed according to the mosaic rite. The former had about them a look of uncanny starkness, symbolic of the rebellious spirit in which they had submitted to their fate. The latter, Lou felt conscious of the curiousness of his fancy, showed calm and resigned in their death. Lou remembered reading about the furious controversies which, especially on the continent, raged concerning the merits and demerits of the Mosaic method it seemed to him that his observation might almost constitute a serious contribution to the question. On and on he strode. Near the great assembly hall, where his brethren were wont to worship in their thousands on the high festivals, he met a group of wedding guests trudging wearily home. The men limp and worn, the women white-shawled, looking like so many ghosts in the gathering dawn ghosts. Lou drew himself up, taut, as though in protest against the suggestion. His life contained no spectres. It was all morning, the essence of daylight. It flashed through his soul the radiance of hope. It undulated in his pulses with billows of youth and strength. His heart cried out lustily. The future was his, and the future— held everything. End of chapter 19